ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene, he kona i purangi tene, e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Today we're taking a big picture view of conservation with Mahi Oranga Senior Analyst Aroha Gilling. Kia ora Aroha. Kia ora Erica. Aroha is an academic and experienced treaty ranger. She and her team provide crucial guidance and education for the Department of Conservation to Papa Atafai to help us be a good treaty partner. She's also a mega fan of all creatures, big and small, in the Rangatahi Molesworth Recreation Reserve. We are so fortunate to have Aroha on the show today to share some of her knowledge and her kōrero. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, kia ora. Namahiki a koutou katoa. He uri ahau o te whānau a apanui, whakatohia, me ngai tahu hoki. Ko Aroha Giling tāku ingoa. Kia ora, I'm Aroha and I'm a descendant of te whānau apanui, whakatohia and ngai tahu. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. So, first up, would you tell me a bit about your role at DOC to Papa Atafai? <laughs> well, currently I've got two roles. So, I'm seconded at the moment to the Mahi Oranga Treaty Team, which is a nationally based team. And we're working on um, making the treaty settlements visible. So, the same way that biodiversity work, heritage work, um, is recorded in a big database and generates tasks, well, eventually um, treaty work will work the same way. Uh, but then I also have another role, and my day-to-day role is as uh, the Treaty Settlement Ranger, the Senior Treaty Settlement Ranger for Te Tau Ihu, or the Northern South Island. Brilliant. What does a Treaty Ranger do? <laughs> everything. Absolutely everything. Um, I like to think about my job as kind of 360 degrees. So if you start at one point of the circle and look outwards, um, I'm responsible for working with our own staff uh, to help them develop skills and and expand on the skills they already have to work well with our uh, treaty partner, with Iwi, Hapu and Whanau. Turn a wee bit further around the circle and I'm responsible for seeing that DOC is meeting our treaty obligations as stated it stated in the Settlement Act. Keep going. And I work alongside Iwi, often in a support role for one of the other um, key Māori roles within Te Papa Atawhai Dock. And then you keep going again and I work out in the community, um, helping our, our community partners learn about working with Iwi, Hapu and Fano. Wow, that must be an incredibly varied and rewarding role to be doing. It's incredibly exciting, it's very challenging and Sometimes I put my head in my hands and wonder what on earth I've got myself into. I'm sure you're doing a wonderful job. So so what's unique about the responsibility for us to Papa Atafai with regards to the treaty? Can you talk me through that? Sure. It's all rooted in having one of the most, well, one of the strongest treaty statements in an act. So the act that governs um, the mahi or the work that we do is the Conservation Act 1987. And Section 4 of the Conservation Act says this Act shall so be interpreted and administered as to give effect to the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. 
So the real um, crunch in that sentence is the shall. It means we have to do it. We have to find a way to bring the treaty to life and um, the principles of the treaty to life in the work that we do. Wow, that's fascinating. And and the give effect line, is that important as well? It is. Give effect, I like to think of as making um, the treaty principles come to life, put them into operation, make them real, make them meaningful. So sometimes there's a perception that science conservation and Mataranga Māori are worlds apart or that they can't align, but there are plenty of experts saying that that's not the case. Is that an attitude that you encounter in your work? It's certainly something I'm aware of, and I've been following very closely a lot of the discussions around this, because to me, um, an integrated approach to conservation means um, Western science and mātauranga Māori, not one subservient to the other, both working in partnership. And I look to people like Reriata Makiha and um, Rangi Mātāmua, and I, I look at bodies of knowledge these that they that they are uh, retelling and reintroducing generations to, and that knowledge has been built up over centuries of close observation of the natural environment, and not only close observation, but um, observations for survival and for um, flourishing. So there is just so much that can be learnt from that kind of close observation and learning over hundreds and hundreds of years that can't be dismissed. I think that mātauranga should never be regarded as an add-on or a body of knowledge to be co-opted or distilled by Western science. I would like to see Western science learn to respect mātauranga and its practitioners and learn how to work alongside these people because um, I think that my ancestors, my tipuna, weren't fools. They knew how to live um, and and to prosper in the natural environment. Before your work as the Senior Treaty Settlements Ranger, you spent a lot of time in training and education. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, I've spent about two decades uh, working in tertiary education, primarily as a treaty educator, and uh, I've worked across a number of disciplines, but the main focus of my mahi was in social work and health and wellbeing providers. So um, two decades of that has helped me refine my craft. And I started out as a, a very raw presenter and slowly built up a, a base of skills and knowledge that's eventually brought me to Te Papa Atawhai and into the roles that I um, have today. And in the education space, I've heard that you run into um, something called tikanga bloopers. Is that something that happens a lot? <laughs> I think it is. I think it's really common. Um, tikanga bloopers, the term, was coined by a colleague of mine. And it's a way of explaining those common mistakes that we all make uh, when we're cr- interacting cross-culturally but um, the next step is what do we do with it after we've made the mistake and that's that's kind of the body of knowledge around tikana bloopers we're all going to make mistakes I've made some some stellar ones in fact I've got a photo to memorialize one of the ones that I made with myself and the then uh, he was attorney general and I think he was the minister of finance 
uh, and possibly Minister of Treaty Settlements. Let's throw that all in. Um, Michael Cullen. <laughs> and the fo- the blooper is, in fact, the photo. I had my then husband with me at um, Marae Nui on the East Coast uh, during the seabed and foreshore meetings with the Crown. So Parikura Horomir and Michael Cullen came round to speak to um, to Iwi and Hapu across the country. And uh, I hadn't thought to, you know, explain the tikana of a pōhiri or the welcoming ceremony to my husband or to talk him through what was expected of him. I just sort of thought, oh, well, I, let's be frank, I was overwhelmed and I just sort of hoped that we'd get through it. And halfway through the pōhiri, so as they're coming up the Hongi and Hariru line to shake hands and, and, and mihi to each other, as Michael Cullen drew um, drew near to me, my husband darted out of the line and took out a camera and took a photo of the whole event. And the look of horror, I still remember the look of horror on my mother's face to this day. But that's a tick on the blooper. And I guess the important thing about understanding them is that often our staff will experience things like that. And there's no malice intended. Um, but the, the, the embarrassment of the event um, can often induce paralysis. So people get too frightened to do anything. And part of the education I do and help to contribute to across um, the educational packages that we deliver is learning how to get past that. Use what you learnt and move on. So, um, yeah. (laughs) And I've had to do a fair amount of that myself. That's so important. I feel like you need to be able to fail in order to progress, right? You need to not be scared of that. Absolutely. So what, what does a typical day look like for you now? It sounds like there are no typical days, but give us an example. Uh, well, as I'm still seconded to Mahi Oranga Treaty, a lot of what I'm doing is meetings and training. Uh, but a typical day as a treaty ranger is something quite different. You can never tell what's going to happen. Uh, so it might be something like going on a trip to support our kui and kaumatua as they uh, travel across the Orohi or the, the region that we live in. Um, it might be helping helping out in an emergency response, supporting the iwi participation in the emergency response. Uh, but I think the thing that really stands out for me are those beautiful moments that just catch you by surprise. And it's it's things like um, watching watching the face of the kui and the komatua as they get to go somewhere that they haven't been for a long time, like Onitahua Farewell Spit or uh, where you're able to help them go and see somewhere spectacular like Rangitoto or Durbal Island. So um, those all require, you know, sort of dock support to get there, whether that's in four-wheel drives, uh, whether it's a long trip along the uh, the Fairwell Spit um, in Golden Bay. And we can do that for them. We've got the resources and the staff, and we're able to take them there to see these things and be part of, be part of um, the whenua and connect with it. You're a highly regarded treaty academic and DOC benefits hugely from your expertise. How did you get into this field of work? I think it, I, I can track it back to when I was about 12 and I think that was when we first interacted with the social studies curriculum. Um, I've probably just dated myself with that stud- statement. Um, and we had an introduction to the Treaty of Waitangi and it wasn't a good introduction. Even at 12, I, re- I was absolutely certain there must be more to the story. Mm-hmm. 
So I remember going to the library and getting out about six books that all mentioned the treaty and they were appalling. At 12, I could tell they were appalling. Um, but I think that's kind of where it started and it persisted. It's persisted my entire life, to be honest. Um, and I still remember the excitement when Claudia Orange first published her book, uh, which was a, a published form of her doctoral thesis. And it was really exciting. For the first time, there was really good quality information from a really credible author. And the other one that I really loved that I remember from, I think, oh, I can't even date that one, sometime in the 80s maybe, uh, was Ka Fafai Tonu Mato by Rangi Nui Walker. So really exciting to get those kinds of books, one from a Māori author, one from a Pākehā author, that helped to build that picture of what I'd sensed as a 12-year-old, that there was far more to the story than we were being told. So that's kind of how I started. Uh, I cut my teeth on, on workshops in the 90s, uh, which wasn't easy, and some of them were horrific. <laughs> I still remember some of them today. But each time I did a tough one or a good one, I learned something, and slowly I've built up this um, kitty of knowledge about delivering this kind of education. That's pretty incredible. Uh, and Claudia Orange, I think, won the Prime Minister's Literary Achievement Award last year. So um, I just love that it's still she's still being recognised for that nonfiction yeah. work. Um, what do you like most about your work? Is there something you can pinpoint? Well, it was those moments of wonders. Of wonder, sorry. That's kind of all I can think of to call them. Mm. Um, I'll give you some some illustrations of what I meant by that. Um, I think of sitting in the hot pools at Awakiri, just outside of Fakatane, with a group of our staff, listening to one of the local iwi narrate the accorded or about the stars, and you're looking up through the steam rising off the hot pools at the stars right there in the sky. Um, another one from the same trip was sitting on the spine of Mo Tohora or Whale Island, actually watching whales transit by and listening to Teke Merito talking. Um, other examples, listening to Uncle Joe Harawira, teaching our staff about the Māori perspective on the beginning of human life on a hot summer day on Otamahua or Quail Island in Whakaraupo, Littleton mm -hmm. Harbour. So, you know, it's that magic of connecting with the natural environment, but connecting with it through that Māori lens. I think that's the highlight of my job. You make it sound so magical like that, and Joe Harawera is such a superstar, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's great. One of my favourite conservation questions to ask is, what's a species that you really love? Oh, one species. Couldn't possibly pick one, Erica. <laughs> I'm well, I, let's see. Actually, my story about the species that I really care about, or two of them anyway, starts back at Onitahua Marae in Golden Bay. So there's uh, the whare there, Te Ao Marama, the, um, the house was, was the decoration of it was overseen by Robin Slow, who's a wonderful local artist and part of the marae whanau. And some of the images that he depicted there really got me curious. So one of the images that occurs in some of the panels are something known as the Clifton Spiders. 
basically it's an albino spider that's blind and the size of a dinner plate. I've always wanted to see one. I really have. I've spent a lot of time clambering around looking for them and I've only ever seen their spider webs. Um, So they have to go on my list. And another one that I saw for the first time illustrated on the walls of Tao Marama uh, was the Poella Fanta Snail. Now, I have actually seen them, and I just think they're the most beautiful things with those burnished brown shells. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to admit that I quite like the notion that they're carnivorous and that they eat, eat worms by sucking them up a bit like we eat pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that clip of one doing it? Yep, I have. So I've sent it to friends all over the world. <laughs> Look what we've got. <laughs> of course, I've got a bird on my list as well. Go on then. <laughs> um, it's the Tarapirohi or the black-fronted tern. Oh. And um, I got to know them on Rangitahi Molesworth or the Molesworth Recreation Reserve. Okay. And I think what appeals to me most about them is um, it's actually the way they look. It's a very shallow reason, <laughs> but they've got these little black skull caps that remind me of World War One flying caps. <laughs> um, and so that's how I use that's the kind of marker I use to identify them. So the the one bird that I'm absolutely definitely sure I've got right. So I look for the little grey feathers and the little black skull cap. <laughs> Easy to find, surely. And and aren't they the ones that dive bomb you when you get too close to their nest? So it's so it's so apt for their little skull cap. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. And um they're they're struggling, they're under serious threat, but mm. um my colleagues from South Marlborough have been working alongside international wildlife management to enhance their habitat and give them mm. a fighting chance. Fantastic. Um, I feel like there's really a theme with your favourite species, perhaps. So seeing as you've spent a lot of time there, what's your favourite memory of being in the Rangatahi Molesworth Recreation Reserve? Um, yes, it is, it is a place I'm incredibly fond of. My uh, One of our, my colleagues in Nelson, after I first went there, looked at me and said, oh, look, you're falling in love. And he was absolutely right. Mm. I have most definitely felt fallen in love with Rangitahi Molesworth. Um, actually, a favourite memory was a Christmas time memory from this year. And it's just one of those, once again, it's one of those moments of wonder. I was just driving back from doing something up at Sedgemere, which is one part of the reserve, and we came across these three men halfway up a scree slope and they had a camera. And I thought, oh, I bet that's interesting. Let's stop and find out. <laughs> So we pulled up and wound the window down and called one over. He looked slightly panicked. I was like, oh, you look like you're doing something interesting there. What's going on? And what they were doing was that they were photographing something called a pen wiper. And a pen wiper is this amazing fleshy kind of, I think they call it a fleshy herb. It looks like it should be part of the succulent family, um, but it's not really. Um, It's one of those incredible plants that you only get to see every two to three years. It lives on scree slopes, and um, the botanists, I think, call it a transient plant because it's it's not always in the same place. Um, they take quite a long time to mature, which could be the reason you only see them every two or three years, and they have a really distinctive, highly fragrant flower. But the best bit is why they're called a pen wiper. 
So they were named after the um, strange contraptions that Victorian England made to wipe their quill pens on, which was essentially a bunch of rags tied around a stick. So if you can imagine a big bunch of rags wound around a stick, then you've got the basic shape of a pen wiper. <laughs> you've done a lot of work over the years delivering Te Pukenga Atafai, the Māori induction course. Can you tell us a bit about what this is and your role there? Sure. Well, this was a wonderful um, course that was started, oh, it must have been in the 80s when they first designed it, and that was um, people like Takei Merito and Joe Harawira involved in, in that. Dave Putter, I think, was uh, on board at that point. And so they came up with this notion that in order to support our staff to act, uh, to interact more respectfully with um, iwi, hapu and Fano, that we needed to be providing a consistent education programme. Um, so they went out and developed this uh, training program. It's delivered across four kawai, um, and the kawai are broken down in, into little bits of information that you can learn and interact with and um, reflect upon. So the four sections are interacting with Fano, hapu and iwi, values and beliefs, te tiriti o waitangi and systems and structures. So that first... Um, a uh, visit to Otako Marae I was talking about. That was my first um, te pukena atawhai ever. And um, I was really lucky because the guest speaker in the te tiriti o waitangi section was uh, Professor Jacinta Rudu, who's well known across, well, internationally for the roles that role that she played in um, the personhood of the Whanganui River and Te Uruwera. So I have been privileged enough to go on to present uh, the Te Tiriti o Waitangi section at, uh, I think, 14 or 15 Te Pukena Atawhai in the five years I've been with the department. Yeah, uh, it's a real privilege to watch our staff learn. And I think one of the things I really like is that Te Papa Atawhai staff are already passionate about, about their particular area. So it's not a big leap for them when you introduce them to uh, good quality knowledge. Uh, it's not a big leap to be passionate about that as well. Hearing you talk about te tiriti or waitangi is quite a life-changing experience. There's often a lot of emotion. Is that a common reaction? It is, because essentially we're, we're challenging um, long-held notions about, about te tiriti or waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, the principles of the treaty. Mm. I think I touched on the notion that the education around this hasn't been great. There's been some wonderful teachers, and of course, we've just lost one of the best, um, Moana Jackson. So, you know, Namihi Kia, Kia Moana. Mm-hmm. He was a real inspiration. But um, outside of people like Moana, like Ranginui Walker, um, quite often this has, hasn't been taught well. And often when you are presenting new information that challenges people's beliefs that's quite a painful process to go through Uh, so it is very um, evocative and it does bring up a lot of emotion because often we're asking people to put aside things that their parents have told them their grandparents have told them things they believed were true and listen to a different narrative I was lucky enough to um, be at the Predator Free Summit last year and I heard um, Dr. Melanie Mark Shadbolt talk about the treaty, uh, what the treaty promises and 
it it contextualized it a bit more for me and absolutely blew my mind. I remember scribbling things down like the Queen got married four days after the treaty was signed. You know, like I just I had no idea. I don't remember learning this when we were watching Castaway in social studies. It's just yeah, I was a bit frustrated, but also there's an expiry date to blaming your education. You've got to find yeah. out for yourself. I guess. Um, so we've got a scenario for you. Uh, so imagine you're in a lecture hall. You've got 30 eager minds ready for you. What's the coolest conservation story you can think of to hook them in? Actually, I'm going to be very naughty and pinch one that is going to appear on a BBC documentary in about October. So, you know, apologies to David at Attenborough, but I'm going to nick it out <laughs> from under him. Copyright <laughs> arrow, I'll <laughs> So um, I'm based in the Nelson Regional Office and we have a series um, called The Doc Talk and this has been going for two or three years now um, where each person in the office does a half-hour update about something they've been working on or something they're passionate about. So last week's was our one of our senior advisors, Graham Elliott. Graham's an extremely good uh, storyteller and he was talking about his and his partner Kath's volunteer work over summer where they go down to the Antipodes and they monitor uh, the same section of the island and looking at the wandering albatross. And they've been doing this for a long, long time. But it was this one little story that really captured uh, my imagination. So in terms of um, fishing... There's a whole lot of regulations about ways that, that fishing boats need to mitigate uh, the damage they do to things like like the like creatures like the wandering albatross. But in international waters, it's much harder to monitor those boats and see that they're actually use, using the mitigation techniques. And so a lot of a lot of birds are lost to to bycatch. So on the Antipodes, there's a lot of these old male birds who have had partners and they've successfully bred with them. But they come back and, and they, their partner's gone. They've been, been part of the bycatch. And these poor old boys, they're just, just lonely and looking for their partner. And he had this, this photo of a, a male wandering albatross standing forlornly by his nest site on a cliff top. And it the younger female birds, they might might check these old boys out, um, but they don't really want one of the old fellas. <laughs> they want one of the hot young fellas. And so these old boys get passed over year after year after year. Oh, no. So what they've observed happening is the old boys are starting to pair up with each other. And then the next shot he put up with is these two old, old um, wandering albatross boys paired up on their nest together for company. Oh, that's my favourite wildlife story ever. <laughs> really, it's Graham's, not mine. I pitched it, but it was just such a wonderful story. Oh, what a story. I just, that took a turn that I didn't expect, and I'm so here for it. Um, oh, I love hearing things about that. And and with wandering albatross, like, that they can go years without touching land. There's just so many incredible uh, native species facts that just blow your mind. Any, any native species fact that blew your mind when you learned it? Hmm, let me think of it. Well, <laughs> it's probably not quite as mind-blowing as the wandering albatross, but I've always had this thing about the scree skinks. It's a rangitahi mozu story again. Um, I always thought they looked like little dragons, 
but I, I um, became even more attached to them when I learned that sometimes when they're threatened, they dive into a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> do they? They do. I just found there's something so transporting and entertaining about these little brown <laughs> dragons plunging into a puddle. Oh, that's, um, I think the mountain stoneweather, when it gets attacked, it pretends to be dead and it throws up on itself. I was like, oh, buddy. Oh, sometimes you wonder about adaptability. <laughs> Has it really worked? You're not helping yourself. Come on. <laughs> What's something that you wish more people knew about your work? Let me see. I have to have a wee think about that one. Actually, I think it's, um, I think it has to do with visitor behaviour. So I spend a lot of time on Rangi Tahi Molesworth Recreation Reserve and I volunteer at Christmas as a camp host. I work there throughout the year, um, often going to visit with, with um, Ngāti Kuri of Kaikoura and, and my colleagues from South Marlborough. So I know it pretty well. But this year I noticed there was a real change in the way people were interacting um, with the with the environment and something I'd really like to see is um, people learning about a place before they go there. So Rangitahi Molesworth is high country. Uh, there's an unsealed road all the way through it. It's not a state highway. Um, you can't get the AA to come in and rescue you if you drive off the side of the, the road. There's sharp turns, blind corners, steep drop-offs. It's hardly got any road marking. And um, there's no corner dairy halfway through. <laughs> so quite a thing I see quite a lot of is people that don't come prepared for those that kind of mm. environment. So I'd really like people to do their research, find out where they're going, take plenty of water, food, and appropriate um, and other appropriate gear so that they are um, well prepared and safe. And there's all sorts of other things too. This is a really special environment, Rangitahi Molesworth. We've got over um, 70 threatened plant species there. So um, I would love to see people treat that environment well and not ride their motorbikes on the, the mm. shale and not ride the motorbikes and their four-wheel drive vehicles off the roads. Um, stick to the campsites. Just that one, use the loos. What is it? The poo in the loo, please. Not all over the place. Take your rubbish home with you and um, look after the, the important historical sort of object uh, places like the Cobb Cottages. Yeah. That's very good advice, that kind of know before you go. And also that weather watch stuff that I feel like people don't quite take into account and then get stuck. Yeah, I quite often hear the um, farm staff on the radio saying someone's left a gate open. And that oh, can se no. set the farm operation back by hours and hours and hours as they recover lost stock. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so I guess when, when we're talking about what's something you wish more people would do, it's... Their homework. Yeah, their homework. Not difficult. Working in conservation can be challenging and working in the treaty space can be challenging. What kind of thing keeps you going? Uh, the opportunity to combat racism, to contribute to um, people learning something new and hopefully changing an attitude, um, helping to build allies for for iwi, hapu and whānau across the country. I think that's really important. Um, and engaging people with good quality uh, information. 
So I think we've got quite a sophisticated audience uh, these days who can get information from all sorts of um, different sources really quickly. So one of the things that I like to be part of is providing good quality information from good sources. For people at home listening, realising they don't know enough about Tatiliti, are there any recommendations on resources they could start with? I'm a book lover, so I'm starting with books. And I can't go past Claudia Orange once again. An Illustrated History of the Treaty of Waitangi. It's accessible, the information's great, and easy to digest. And then if you like that one, go the next step, get the textbook. Um, another one I think is a great a great piece of writing is, uh, I think I've already mentioned it, Arangi Nui Walker's Kafafai Tonu Mato, Struggle Without End. This was a really important book because it was the, one of the first histories authored by a Māori writer and it stood up well over time. Uh, and for a more contemporary book, I think you can't go past the Treaty of Waitangi Companion, Māori and Pākehā, from Tasman to today, and that's Vincent O'Malley. And that's for the people that like the bigger story. Um, this is a great book. It not only has that kind of standard timeline that you would see in a treaty book, but it tells you the wider context of events in our country when something happens. It looks at key documents, it's got photographs, it's got quotes. It's one of those books you can pick up and you can read a bit and you think, well, I never knew that when it was happening. So a good example of that would be uh, the pine on One Tree Hill being cut down mm. or uh, what's known as Hetaua, the um, events surrounding the the clash between Māori protesters and um, engineering students at Auckland University. So, yeah, it really pads, pads that history out. I've got such a list to go to the library for. That's great. Thank you very much. And such a breadth as well. Thank you so much for your time, Aroha, and your generosity with your expertise. I hope people have learned a lot. I know I have. You're welcome, Erica. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Erica Wilkinson, and this has been the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can stream it off our website, doc.gov.nz. This podcast is produced by Jane Ramage, with sound and editing by Laura Honey. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and show our hard-working guests some love. Ka kite.